We're continuing our series in Acts, Acts chapter 20. And I'm going to start just a little bit before our reading, so I'm going to start in verse 13. Um, if you have your handouts with you, there is a uh, one of the handouts you received as you came in has got a space for an outline. Uh, there it is, there's an outline there. So if you'd like to take notes, you're welcome to do that. There's some uh, pencils at the welcome desk which you can use as well. But the Bible is open to Acts chapter 20. Now we're looking at Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. Now, a, uh, there's a story about a Roman Catholic priest who was being honoured at a uh, farewell dinner after 25 years in his parish, and uh, a leading politician who was also a member of the parish was uh, asked to make a speech uh, as well. Uh, the politician was uh, running late uh, because of traffic, uh, as, as is always the case. Um, but it was okay because the priest was uh, due to make his speech first. And he said, you know, my first impression when coming to this passage was not a very good one. The first confession I heard here, the person came to my confessional and said, you know, I've just stolen a television set and when stopped by the police, I nearly murdered the officer. He's stolen money from his parents, embezzled from his place of business, had an affair with his boss's wife, taken illegal drugs. He said, I was appalled, but as the days went on, I found that actually not all the people in the congregation were like that. We've had a wonderful time in this parish of good and loving people for the past 25 years. Just then the politician arrived, apologized for being late, and immediately started to give his speech. I'll never forget the first day our parish priest arrived, said the politician. I had the honor of being the very first one to go to confession. <laughs> In our passage today, we are looking at a farewell speech. It's a speech by the Apostle Paul to the elders of the Ephesian church. Now, before we look at that speech, we need to understand a little bit more about who they were and why Paul was speaking to them. Uh, and what's the relationship between them and us? The Apostle Paul was on his way back to Jerusalem uh, in what we now call his third missionary journey. Uh, back in chapter 19, he had been in Ephesus. Uh, he'd spent three years there, all in all, started off teaching in a synagogue, but eventually moved to a hall where he reasoned and taught with both Jews and Gentiles uh, because the Jews had kind of like persecuted him in the synagogue. And through his work there, the gospel had gone out to all the surrounding regions. And God did amazing miracles there as well. Even handkerchiefs that touched his skin were taken to the sick and they were miraculously healed and evil spirits left them. And new believers confessed their sins of being involved in magic. They burned their magic books publicly. The name of Jesus was exalted. The word of God spread. And at the end of that time, Paul decided to go back to Jerusalem. But he decided to go the long way, via Macedonia, which is in the opposite direction. And the reason he, we know from his letters that the reason he did that was because he wants to take, collect money for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. That's really important to Paul. We read about it in his letters because the, Jew, the Gentiles owe the Jews. The Jews shared their spiritual blessings with the Gentiles. The Gentiles should share their material blessings with the Jews. It was a sign to the Jewish Christians of the, of the uh, harvest that he was reaping among the Gentiles, which may be why that he wants to present it at Pentecost, which for the Jews is the harvest festival. Uh, this gift is important for him, but it's not terribly important for Luke in terms of the, the point that he wants to make uh, in, in Acts, because he only mentions it very briefly later on. Anyway, we're coming to the passage. Paul is on the return leg now of his journey. He's been to Macedonia. Follow with me on the screen, if you can. Uh, in your Uh, 
you all see from that side? So, okay, good. They come down to, 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 to Miletus to meet him. Uh, and so the, le- the elders of the Ephesian church, they come down uh, and he speaks to them there. Now, who were the elders? The word elder is a translation of the Greek word presbyteros, from which we get presbyter. Uh, in 1 Timothy and Titus, we see that elders or presbyters were men who were appointed as leaders of the church. And first and foremost, they had to be godly, and then they also had to be able to teach. They led the church, they were to be honoured, they were to be paid for their work. If they persisted in sin, they were to be rebuked publicly because their ministry was a public ministry. They were probably appointed through the laying on of hands, but this wasn't to be done in a hurry. And in Acts 14.23, on a previous missionary trip, Paul and his partners had had appointed uh, elders or presbyters in other cities where they had planted churches with prayer and fasting. It was a serious appointment. So when we come to hear what Paul is saying to these elders or presbyters, we need to work out who they are in our context. And I think that will differ from church to church and from denomination to denomination today because churches are structured in different ways. You've got to work out who are the equivalents in our, in our structure. Uh, in our context, in the Anglican church, I think the elders or the presbyters are the clergy. Uh, they are the people who fit the pattern here. In fact, the word priest for Anglicans is actually the word presbyter. It's a different word than that comes, it, it, it's, not the, it's not the sacrificing priesthood like in the Roman Catholics. It's the word for presbyter, it's the elder. Uh, and if anyone thinks we don't have a plurality of elders in St. Mary's, they're wrong because we've at least four recognized clergy. And we have other people who are functioning as elders or presbyters in the congregation even though they haven't been formally appointed that way. So the things that Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders about in his farewell speech, well, First and foremost, he's talking about, in, in our kind of context, yeah, the, 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 the clergy. The, but, there, but we also have many more leaders than we have presbyters, don't we? Any leader here, if you're in a pastoral team, or you're in a small group leader, you're someone who does one-to-ones with someone, you're someone who teaches Sunday school, uh, or someone who, who leads your own kids at home, you're exercising some kind of leadership. And this, is, this is relevant to you. Anyone here who may one day be a leader, then listen up as well. And if it's not you even, then still don't go to sleep because you need to hold your leaders accountable. So listen to what Paul says to the Ephesian presbyters, the Ephesian elders. He begins by reminding them of his ministry among them. Because, you see, he modeled the kind of ministry that he wanted them to have. And because he was a man of integrity, he wasn't telling them something new. He wasn't making up things. His ministry among them was authentic. They knew what he was saying was real. Verse 18, he starts off, he says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot into Asia. They know his ministry. He did it in front of them. Not telling them, just They saw him. And what was he doing? He was, verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. Serving the Lord with all humility. The word serving there is the word for the work of a slave. He was a slave of the Lord Jesus, and so he served with all humility, humbly among them. Now, Paul was the great apostle to the Gentiles, wasn't he? On the scale of things, if you look back through the salvation history, he's probably among the five top most important people that ever lived. Far greater than any church leader today. Far greater than any archbishop or famous evangelist or learned professor or mega church pastor. But he didn't stride around full of self-importance. He let it be known that he was the apostle of the Gentile with the authority for Jesus when he he needed to in order to fulfill his ministry. But he didn't hide that. But but he served the Lord with all humility. He didn't serve himself or his career. And friends, leaders, if we are leaders among God's people, then first and foremost we are serving him. We are the slaves. He is the master. It is him we serve, and it's to him we give account of our service. Being a slave at work for the master is a great privilege, but it is no cause for pride. It's no cause for arrogance. We are humble slaves. And Paul, as he served, faced persecution. 
Verse 18, uh, verse 19 continues, He served the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now we don't know what these plots of the Jews are. We, uh, we know back in chapter 19, verse 8 and 9, the Jews were stubborn, they persisted in their unbelief, they spoke evil of the way, which is the Christian faith, in front of the whole congregation of the synagogue. And Paul had to, was forced to withdraw and take his disciples with him to the, to the hall of Tyre. So, is that what he's talking about? That something happened internally in the synagogue? That they, that they did these kind of things? Or is there some other things, other persecutions not mentioned? We don't know. But whatever the case is, actually, when you look back, Ephesus, relatively speaking, was a relatively good place for Paul. All right. He suffered in Ephesus, yeah, he's telling us this, but he got a lot more words in other places. But even in Ephesus, in a nice, good, good kind of place, tears and trials marked his ministry. Friends, expect tears and trials in ministry. If you're not prepared to face tears, if you're not prepared to face opposition, if you're not prepared to face tough times, then you're not prepared for ministry. And we don't go looking for trouble. But if we faithfully do the work the Lord Jesus gave us to do, then eventually, probably, trouble will come. Don't expect otherwise. If you do, then adjust your expectations. But in spite of opposition, Paul served his Lord faithfully. He reminded the Ephesians elders, verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. He didn't shy from teaching them the truth. He didn't keep God's plans and purposes part of it secret in case they don't like what they hear. No, 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 no. He taught them, verse 20, in everything that was profitable, in public and from house to house. See, whether it's in public, whether it's in private, he gives them the whole thing. The message is the same to all audiences. He doesn't discriminate who, he, who, who he, he, he preaches the gospel to either. He preaches, verse uh, 21, to Jews and Gentiles. Both sides. Even though the Jews were against it. There's no group that he said, oh, I can't talk to them about Jesus. Gospel's not for them. And what did he speak about to the Jews and the Greeks? Verse 20. Verse 21 actually. Testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He called them to repentance, to turn away from sin and come to God. He called them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one King who could save them from sin and its punishment through his death for them. And so he testified indiscriminately to Jews and to Greeks of repentance to God and faith in Jesus Christ. And that was what faithful service was about. Friends, let us not be unfaithful. We could hide the truth. There are some people who preach a gospel such that some of the main doctrines of the Christian faith are purposely left out to make the message more palatable to their target audience. That is not faithful ministry. We could have a different message publicly and different message privately. That, that is not faithful ministry. We could discriminate against some people and say we refuse to share the gospel with them. That is not faithful ministry. We could preach a message that people like to hear. How God can solve all your problems, make you rich, fix your illnesses, mend your relationships, and fail to preach repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is not faithful ministry. The Ephesians knew Paul's ministry. And you know the ministry of those who serve among you. And those whom you serve know your ministry. How does your ministry and ours stack up in terms of faithfulness? Do we proclaim repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus? And do we do it consistently 
and humbly with tears and trials. Now that Paul has reminded the Ephesian elders of his ministry among them, he, he turns to speaking to them of his present plans. And even here we see his attitude to ministry. Verse 22 he says, And now I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul is constrained by, he's bound by the Spirit, he's compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. We don't know how the Spirit did this, whether it's by word of prophecy, or through a vision, or through dreams, or making him realize that he needed to take this gift to Jerusalem as fulfillment of Old Testament, but, but whatever the way is, the Spirit constrained him. Now, Paul knew how to make ministry decisions. He knew his general orders from Jesus to make the gospel known to Jews and Gentiles, and he went about planning and executing and doing it. wasn't always waiting for detailed guidance in each step, but when the Holy Spirit constrained him in a particular way, he was obedient to him. And being an apostle, he could be confident of getting it right in a way that we wouldn't necessarily be. But the Holy Spirit, through Luke, didn't just constrain him, the Spirit who sent him to Jerusalem kept warning him of the dangers that he would face there. Paul says, the Spirit testifies to me that in every city, well, actually, the Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Again, we don't know how, but we know that he did. In fact, we don't know if he warned Paul that afflictions and imprisonment awaited him in every city, or that he warned him in every city that imprisonment and afflictions awaited him in Jerusalem. Right? But the important thing is this. The Spirit kept telling Paul to press ahead with his trip. And the Spirit kept warning Paul that his trip was going to be perilous. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. Sometimes we think that if we know something is going to be dangerous or lead to suffering, that means we shouldn't do it. That would be wise, we say. But not necessarily. The Apostle, the Spirit, told the Apostle Paul, it's going to be dangerous, you're going to suffer, but go anyway. And Paul was doing it. And why does he do it when it's going to be so bad? Well, look at his perspective in verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. What is my life, huh? he says. How precious is that? It's not that precious to me. Well, what's more important is that I do the work that God gave me to do. And what does that work? End of verse 24. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. To testify to the gospel of the grace. How, how precious is your life to you? How precious? Is it more precious than the gospel? Now, different ones of us have different areas of ministry. We're not all the missionaries of the Gentiles and walking into dangerous, dangerous situations where we're going to be killed. It's going to look different for different ones of us. If you're a mother and your main ministry is not so much preaching to the masses but bringing up your children to love and follow Jesus, well, your life is precious, isn't it? Your children need you to live so that you can teach them the gospel. Your life is precious because of the gospel, not more precious than the gospel. Do, do your work and do it properly. Testify to the gospel of grace to your children. Don't shrink away from doing that because that is more important than life itself. Because, friends, we're all going to die anyway, aren't we? Come back here in a hundred years, we'll all be gone. Spend your life doing what is best. Give your life to what is best. Be faithful to the ministry that God has gifted you to do. Play your part in the body, in the family, in the church. If you have to die to do it, then oh, die to do it. Not such a big deal. 
And if you have to make a lesser sacrifice to do it, then oh, you could do that as well, can't you? Don't count your life as so precious that you shrink back from testifying to the gospel of grace. Paul didn't fail to preach the gospel to the Ephesians, and so when he said goodbye to them, he could do it with confidence. Verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God means the whole will of God, the whole, whole purpose of God, which is centered on the gospel. Right? Found in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ, expounded in the New. It doesn't mean that he had literally preached all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Right? That's not what the, whole, what the word counsel means. It means purpose. Quite apart from the fact that Revelation hadn't been written yet, right? when, he, when he said this. Uh, Paul has taught them the gospel, he has taught them God's plan, he has taught them, he showed them the implications of that, and he showed them the whole thing. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And because he said, I've taught you the whole counsel of God, I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Remember our Old Testament reading today? Prophet Ezekiel, so watchman to Israel. God said to Ezekiel, if you have a word from me to warn the wicked and you give him no warning, he will die and his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn him and he doesn't turn away, he will die for his sin, but you will save your soul. If you, have a, if you are a prophet and you have a word from God, you have an awesome responsibility. Not easy being a prophet. And the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament prophets were the apostles. Same thing applied there. Paul had the word of God. He had the message of Jesus Christ. He had the gospel of grace. The gospel that calls people to repentance and faith. And if he failed to preach it to the very people that he was sent to, their blood would be on his head. God would call him to account for failing to warn them and for their subsequent destruction. Not easy being an apostle. Now, we know to the moment ago that we all have different roles in this. None of us are apostles here. None of us are Old Testament prophets. But some of us are elders and some of us are leaders in other ways. How does this apply to us? Well, let's see what Paul says to the elders of Ephesus about their role now. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock. Pay careful attention. That's the, that's, the, that's the imperative. That's the command. Pay careful attention. The word is to be alert for, be, watch out for, be on guard for, beware for. It means to, to, to be in a continuous state of readiness, to learn of any future danger or need or error, and be constantly ready to, to respond appropriately. Be on guard for. Keep a close eye on who? Yourselves and all the flock. Watch yourselves first. Then, watch all the flock. Leaders among us, whether you are elders or other kinds of leaders, this applies to all of us, doesn't it? Applies to me as well. Don't you go off the rails. Don't shipwreck your faith. The dangers are subtle. You move theologically bit by bit by bit. You get weaker bit by bit. Compromise on one thing or another one step at a time. And over many years, people who start off theologically sound end up leading people astray. What does the Spirit say? Watch yourself. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust your thinking, your brilliance. Cry to God to preserve you and keep you faithful. Watch yourself. Stick to the scriptures. They are God's revealed word. Test everything by them for anything else can potentially lead you astray. To boldly go beyond the scripture is tough faithfulness. It is folly. Watch yourself. Or a moral compromise here, a sin there, and you're on the path to destruction. 
And you are in a terrible position because when you go down, you don't just go down, you take others with you. Watch yourself. Paul would later write to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Watch out yourself. James wrote, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Watch yourself. Keep a close eye on yourself if you are to be a leader of any kind in the church of God. And then Paul says, Keep an eye on the flock. Stand guard over them. That is your job. They are the ones, verse 28, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Your job is to guard them. The Spirit has made you overseers. Now, in 1 Timothy 3, someone may aspire to be an overseer or a presbyter, so same thing. But that has to be tested, what? Primarily by their character and their ability to teach God's word. In Titus, it is Titus who appoints elders or overseers. And so the the qualifications, again, primarily character, and then being able to hold firmly to the word and to teach it to others. So from a human point of view, we see a combination of internal willingness and desire in the person, and recognition and appointment by the appropriate church authority, when correctly recognized that the man concerned exemplifies godly character and is gifted in teaching the word. And when all that happens, you look back and you say, the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. He has drawn you to Christ. He has given you a desire to serve him. He has changed your character. He has gifted you for ministry. He has given wisdom to church leaders to appoint you. And the Spirit has been sovereign in this whole process. He has made you an overseer. He has made you an elder. He has made you a presbyter. He has made you a priest, whatever you want to call it. And he has made you an overseer, verse 28, to care for the church of God. To care. Now, the actual word translated to care for there means to, to shepherd, to rule, to lead, to feed, to guide. All those things. Well, I think in fact in fact in I think in the NIV they just it changes it to say be shepherds of the church of God. The elder or the overseers are shepherds, or if you want to use another word, pastors. That's the shepherding word, isn't it? who lead and teach and feed and guide God's people. And the Spirit has made them elders in order to do that. And, and friends, that is an awesome responsibility. Because the people they are looking after are no ordinary people. This is the church of God! This is the assembly that belongs to Him. And you know how it came to belong to Him? Verse, 20, which, verse 28, which He obtained with His own blood. Jesus Christ, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, shed his blood so that he could have this church. You know, Smack One, you are very precious to me because I was your first pastor or elder or overseer and and I love you all very much and if people try and lead you astray, I'm not going to say, oh, you know, that's okay. Of course not, but I didn't purchase you with my blood. Jesus did. And you are far, far more precious to him. One day I will no longer be your pastor, but Jesus will always be your saviour, your lord, your chief shepherd, your husband. He is the one who loved you, who bought you with his blood to be his church. You think you're precious to God? Of course you are. You are his. And if people try to lead you astray, you think he's going to be happy? So overseers, leaders, small group leaders, whatever kind of leaders, look at the people in this room. They are a precious flock. They belong to Jesus, purchased by his blood. And he has put you in charge of some of them, in some way. 
to lead them and guide them and shepherd them and guard them. And he says, watch yourself and watch them carefully. Don't let any harm befall them. They are precious to me. The Anglican ordination rite puts it well. Listen to the words the bishop speaks to the presbyters at their ordination. I'm using a modernized version of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Some of the modern ones have watered it down a little bit. But this is a really biblical charge. Listen to what it says. You have heard, brothers, both beforehand in private and now in the sermon and the scripture readings, just how great and important is the office to which you have been called. I bid you in the name of the Lord Jesus never to forget this and to remember what you are called to. You are called to be messengers, watchmen, stewards of the Lord. You are to teach and warn, to feed and nurture the Lord's family, to seek for Christ's sheep scattered abroad among the disobedient peoples of this world, that they may be eternally saved through Christ. Have it always printed on your memory just how great a treasure is committed to your charge. The church and the congregation whom you serve are Christ's spouse, and body. They are his sheep which he purchased with his death and for whom he shed his blood. You know what a great fault you will be guilty of if any member of his church is hurt or hindered as a result of your negligence and that God will discipline you. Therefore remember what God has called you to do. Never cease your careful and diligent labors until you have done all you possibly can according to your duty to bring all those who are committed to your charge to a knowledge of God, unity in the faith and maturity in Christ so that no place is given to erroneous beliefs or wrong behavior. What a powerful charge. And what a biblical charge, isn't it? I think we probably don't make enough of charging our leaders here in SMAC. Go from one year to another, one set of leaders to another, without formally pressing them with their responsibilities. So small group leaders, let me put you on notice, okay? Next year, when you are appointed or reappointed, we will have a public charging of your responsibility. Is that okay? And then we'll all pray for you. <laughs> Leaders, why do we need to watch ourselves in the flock? Why is things so dangerous? Why does Paul want the Ephesian elders to be so careful? Well, verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw disciples after them. There are people who want disciples of their own, not disciples of Jesus. There are people who will preach a gospel of their own, not the gospel of grace, not the gospel of faith in God and repentance towards Jesus Christ. There are people who will teach a message of their own and not the word of God. There are people who will speak twisted things, who will mislead people, who will draw people away from the faith. And they are not real shepherds, they are wolves, fierce wolves. And they don't come to feed the flock with God's word and lead the flock to Christ. They don't spare the flock from harm, they harm the flock. And verse 29 says, some of these men will come in from the outside. And then he says to the Ephesians, oh, some will arise from among yourselves. And when we read this, we realize what he was saying earlier, watch yourselves, plural, didn't just mean each elder watching himself, but all the elders watching themselves together. Each elder watching each other. Because some of them, he says, will turn out to be Anakin Skywalker. And therefore, Paul says to the Ephesians, therefore, verse 31, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. For three years Paul taught the Ephesian elders. For three years he instructed them in the truths of the gospel. For three years he nurtured them and discipled them and warned them. He worked hard for them day and night. Not, not watching his hours like a hired hand. His heart went out to them. He was teaching and warning them with tears. Not emotionally detached like a hired hand either. He was shepherd giving himself for them 
his time, his emotional energy, giving himself for them, and he wanted them to be like that for the others as well. How were they going to watch out? How are they going to be on guard? Yep. What's, how do you watch out effectively? I mean, what's the difference between watching something dreadful happen and watching it with the power to stop it from happening? Well, remember, it is God who can save his church and keep it and eventually bring people to their inheritance, which is the promised land, the new creation, to be with him forever. But what is the way that God can use to keep his church and take them there, to prevent them from being devastated by the wicked wolves? How does the elders watching fit into this? Well, we find that from his com- commendation. Verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. See that? It is the word of grace. It is God through the word of the gospel who is able to build up the elders and the people and to give them their place among God's holy people at the end. So how do the elders watch out for themselves? They keep on coming back to the word of grace. How do the elders keep watching for the flock? They keep on teaching them the word of grace. And the word of grace is the message of God. God has been so unfathomably kind to us in Jesus Christ. It's the message that poor, unworthy sinners like you and me, who are heading to hell that we deserve, have instead been forgiven and freed and adopted as God's children and given that wonderful inheritance the new creation because God himself, in the Lord Jesus Christ, paid for our sins with his blood. It's the message that the Jesus who died for us on the cross as our substitute to take our punishment for sin has been raised from the dead and is the Lord and King of all. The word of grace is the word of the gospel. And that gospel word is found on every page of this written word around which we gather each week. And so every week we come together to hear God speaking his message of grace in his word. And every week God builds us up by his word as it is faithfully read and proclaimed in this place. Every week we see the promise of the gospel, the implications of the gospel, as we hear this written word read and expounded. That is how God keeps us on course. The elders of God's people watch out for his flock, they feed his flock, they guard his flock, they shepherd his flock by his word. And that is how the church will be preserved against the wolves that will rise up and come in. It is by the word of God's grace. Let me tell you, my friends, the day we stop preaching the word here properly is the day you come up to all us preachers and you say, what do you think you're doing? The day we stop preaching the gospel of grace from the word of truth is the day you take us to task. Far too many churches have gone by the wayside because the elders stopped preaching the word of God and started telling stories. Far too many churches have gone by the wayside because pastors stopped expounding the scriptures and started teaching their own ideas. Far too many churches have gone by the wayside because the priest gives a five-minute sermonette that's a few observations about the world and the flock goes home starving. Far too many churches have gone by the wayside because the preachers are seeking to entertain the flock rather than to guard the flock. And there are even churches where the Bible is taught but not in a way that brings to light the grace of the gospel and the gospel of grace. Don't let that ever happen to us. Because if that happens, then we are vulnerable to wolves. So friends, there is one meeting here that is just as important, maybe nearly as important, maybe more important than our Sunday gathering. 
No, he said, cannot be. Well, think about it. Maybe it is. Well, forget arguments. Leave our Sunday gathering aside. I tell you, apart from this, the most important gathering that happens here is what? It's our staff Bible study. Because in our staff Bible study, what do we do? We're watching out for each other. Staff team get together each week around the Word of God. We wrestle together with the Scriptures, under the authority of the Scriptures, and we help each other stay the course. The Word of Grace builds us up as leaders. And the same Word of Grace builds up the whole flock. And then that makes sense of Paul's whole approach in this speech. We look over his speech. Notice the words that Paul uses to describe his ministry. Verse 19, serving. Verse 20, declaring. Verse 20 again, teaching. Verse 21, testifying. Verse 24, testifying again. Verse 25, proclaiming. Verse 27, declaring. Verse 31, admonishing. You see the pattern? Paul is serving how? By declaring, teaching, testifying, testifying, proclaiming, declaring it. It's a ministry of the word, isn't it? And the content of his message? Verse 20, anything that is profitable. Verse 21, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, the gospel of grace. Verse 25, the kingdom. Verse 27, the whole counsel of God. Paul serves the Lord among them by gospel-centered ministry of the word. Now remember, Paul does mighty miracles in Ephesus. He does. We saw that just now. But when he comes to summarize his ministry there for the Ephesian elders, he, he mentions nothing of them. Conspicuous by their absence. Because what he wants to emphasize is the ministry of the word of God. Because that's what he wants the Ephesian elders to emulate. That is what he wants them to be on about. Now, he doesn't say God's going to stop doing miracles. Neither does he say miracles are going to go on. I believe God continues to do miracles, but that's not something for us to argue about because frankly, God can do whatever he likes. But either way, the shape of the ministry that Paul describes him here, the shape of the ministry that he talks about himself in, the shape of the ministry that he wants the Ephesians to pursue, the shape of the ministry the Holy Spirit wants us to pursue is not miracle-centered, it is gospel-centered. It is word-based. For the word of his grace is able to build us up and give us a place among the sanctified. Well, at the end of his speech, Paul reminds the elders of something else about his ministry, and that is his financial integrity. He didn't try to use his position to get things from people. In verse 33 to 35, when we start with verse 33, he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You know, there were many teachers or philosophers at the time who sold their teaching professionally, you know, gather disciples around them and pay, will pay them to teach them, and the more the disciples they gathered, the, the richer they'd be. But, but that wasn't Paul's motivation. He wasn't trying to use the gospel as a means of an end of getting lots of silver or gold or fine clothes. He wasn't like the prosperity preachers who ask people for money so they can have Learjets. Right? And he's certainly not like some leaders today who cheat and defraud God's church and use their positions for personal gain. No, no, that's not the case. In fact, he did the opposite. Verse 34. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, it is a biblical principle that people who work full time for the gospel get supported through the work of the gospel. In fact, 1 Corinthians 9.14, 1 Corinthians 9.14, Paul says that Jesus himself said it. He said, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. That is the right of the minister of the gospel. It is a right ordered by Jesus. 
But so careful was Paul in his ministry among the Ephesians not to give them the impression that he was doing this for profit, that he went purposely not even to make use of the right that he, that when he was with them. Instead, he did extra work outside with his hands so that he would have money to help those who were financially weak among them because Jesus said it's better to give than to receive and he wants to show them that he wants to serve them and he's not there to try and get their money. And so the Ephesian elders knew that he was a man of financial integrity. And friends, all our leaders need to be people of financial integrity. The flock needs to be able to trust the shepherds. Never make a crook the leader of a church. That sounds pretty obvious, doesn't it? But I tell you what, it happens. Because you can't trust the shepherds with money, and how can you trust them with something like something really valuable, like the care of souls? Well, leaders must be beyond reproach in matters financial. Now, in this particular instance, Paul insisted on paying his own way. We don't want all our leaders to do that. There are times when this kind of thing is needed and times where it's not. Now, as we look around us, most of our leaders here work for a living and help those in need and volunteer their service to the church. Some of our leaders are employed full-time by the church and frankly, we wouldn't want to have it any other way, would we? Because we want them to be working for us full-time and full-time for the gospel and we're more than happy to pay them. And they are happy to be paid by us even though it is significantly less than what they would have earned outside. But the principle is this. None of our leaders are doing ministry for the money. They do the ministry because the love of Christ compels them. And we pay them because we want them to live and to live responsibly while they are doing the ministry. Right? Ministry is not there to make you rich. Well, after Paul had said all these things, Verse 36, he knelt down and prayed with them all. He had charged them, he had warned them, and all he can do is pray with them. And I'm sure he prayed for them. Paul loved the Ephesian elders, and the Ephesian elders loved Paul, and, and saying goodbye was high. Verse 37, there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Our brothers and sisters saying goodbye is always hard, isn't it? I hope I never have to say goodbye to you. I can just keep serving God among you till I die, and then you can say goodbye to me. Of course, God only knows how that will turn out. But Paul could say goodbye with a clear conscience, knowing that he had done the right thing. And so as I speak to you, I speak to my fellow leaders, and I speak to myself. Let's be like Paul. And let's be like he wanted the Ephesian elders to be. To love the flock, work hard for the flock, watch the flock. And let's watch ourselves and watch each other. Let's make the gospel-centered word the basis for our ministry. And let's do it with passion, with love and tears. Because smack is the church of God. Smack is precious to God. It is his flock bought with a price of his own blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word, the word of grace that is able to sustain us and keep us and protect us and bring us to that eternal inheritance that you have given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ.
We thank you, Heavenly Father, that your word has spoken to us this morning in all our different situations. We pray, Heavenly Father, that as your people here, you will preserve us, that you will keep us faithful to you, that you will guard us and protect us from fierce wolves that will turn our hearts away from you and your truth, that you will always provide us with leaders who love you and who faithfully proclaim your word. Leaders in every level of leadership in this congregation. Father, help us to take our leadership seriously, knowing that we are accountable to you, and knowing that this church is is your flock. It is precious to you. Father, we pray for all of our leaders. We pray that you help us to watch ourselves, to watch each other, to watch the flock. Keep us faithful, we pray. Don't let us turn aside. We know that in and of ourselves we are weak. But we know that your spirit, through your word, is able to hold us fast. So may we be a church that continues to be faithful and continues to seek to honor Jesus and proclaim to the world the gospel of grace. Keep us, we pray, and bring us by your grace to that inheritance. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.